going to talk about a wedding feast this morning. And this is definitely one of my favorite passages of Scripture. But just in the, in the name of full disclosure, I want you to know that I preached this sermon early on after the launch of Emmaus Road. It was after our short stint at the Lutheran Church. How many of you guys were with us in the Lutheran Church? There's CJ and Chloe. Yeah, Jeff and Deb. Okay. So, so we were in a little Lutheran church having a 2 p.m. service <laughs> on Sunday afternoons. And it was great because it was February, March. And then we realized as we were headed towards summer, nobody at the lake on a Sunday afternoons go, hey, let's pack up and go to church this afternoon at 2. So we had to, we had to move. Um, we, did a, we did a series of, uh, on the parables that Jesus taught when we were at Cedar Home Elementary School for three years. And as my week was very full this week, I chose to dust that sermon off and repurpose it for this morning as we're coming towards the end of the Harmony of the Gospels. And, and to that end, if any of you have suggestions about where we want to go next in the Bible, please feel free to text or email me. I'd love your suggestions. Uh, I might not take them to heart, but um, no, I, I will read all of them and, and I'm sure that they will be good. Even as I was remembering all the stages and changes that have occurred over the seven plus years of Emmaus Road's existence, so much has changed. And so much that we thought was lasting was actually transient and fleeting. And the truth is, there are so many uncertainties in this life. So many things that we look at and, and consider and then end up resigning ourselves to not knowing fully. We, we don't usually have the capacity to chase the thing down all the way to its end. This life brings a great deal of opportunity when it comes to embracing the mystery. But there is one thing, however, that I am convinced is a universal truth of human life. Weird things happen at weddings. Inevitably, weird things happen. Now, I have easily been a part of over 100 weddings um, as a singer, as a musician, most of them pretty good paying gigs, and, and then there's the free food when you're a musician, so that's a bonus. Um, I've been a groomsman mostly in my 20s when my friends were all getting married. I've been an officiant in weddings several times, and, and then there's that one where I got to be the groom. That was pretty awesome. There she is right there. That was a great day. I've seen many wonderful and strange things in the context of weddings, wedding rehearsals, rehearsal dinners. I've seen the pre-ceremony jitters and on and on. The bridezillas, the momzillas, the fainting groomsmen, no joke. The practical jokes that, uh, man, you shouldn't have done that. That was, ugh. Um, amazing music at weddings, horrible music at weddings, <laughs> an actual cake topper at a wedding where one of the groomsmen had attached a little ball and chain to the groom's ankle on the topper before the reception. The bride was not happy about that. Uh, but the one thing I've never personally witnessed nor been a party to is crashing a wedding. I've never done that. Um, sometimes crashing a wedding can be a thing that turns out really well. Like the time Tom Hanks was jogging in Central Park when he stopped by, he spotted a happy couple and decided to drop in for pictures with the wedding photographer catching all of that. Um, that's a great thing. Um, Hanks also posted his own selfie of the joyous occasion. But most of the time, the bride and groom and their families do not take kindly to wedding crashers. 
And, and I think a big part of that is how expensive it is. You weren't invited. This is already expensive. Get out of here, right? So the, the quick story here on this is a bride named Michelle tells her story. She says, our wedding was crashed by the wedding party from a venue across the street. Lesson number one of wedding crashing should be to not show up in very obvious bridal party attire from another wedding. But I decided to have some fun with them. And since I had already changed into my little white dress, they didn't realize that I was the bride. After a few minutes of asking them to tell me some of the fun stories about their good friend, the bride, I let them know that the charade was up and that they should kindly finish their drinks and move along. Their faces dropped when they found out that I was the bride and they hustled out of there as quickly as they could. So all of this setup about weddings and marriage this morning is really about Matthew chapter 22. The text tells us here uh, a parable about a wedding and a huge reception, a big feast thrown by a king in the honor of his son's nuptials. There was even a wedding crasher in the text, as we'll see, and some important information for you and me to, to mill over. So let's go over to Matthew 22. If you have your Bible, we're going to look at the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. So follow along with me. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who are invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all who they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in and look at the guests, there was a man there who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he said to him, he was, oh, he, excuse me, and he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, so catch that tagline again. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, unless you are a card-carrying Calvinist or really heavily into Reformed theology, that phrase, many are called, but few are chosen, um, that, that phrase is something that some of us here might not really understand or it might threaten to trip us up in our theology. It's a common hurdle in Western civilization, American, uh, when American eyes are reading the text, but we don't understand the Middle Eastern or Jewish context of what we're reading and what's happening. So let's, let's start by dealing with the presupposition here. 
um, we want to be careful with those presuppositions. Here's the first thing you need to know. Everyone brings presuppositions to the text of the Bible. We can't help it. We know what we've learned in school. We've learned growing up. And when we read the text, that, that's a very Jewish Middle Eastern text that's thousands of years old, we inevitably read our thoughts, our best thoughts about life in America today onto the text at some point. So when, when you casually read the Bible, it's, it's almost inevitable to those of us that, that live in America today, we, we almost always go afoul of the text in some way at some point. It could be a very small thing or it could be a very large thing. But your job and mine is to try to ask the questions that get us to what we call authorial intent. What did the author who wrote this intend to say to us? That's the question. Who is the author? What is he trying to say? In the Gospels, when Jesus is speaking and we have his actual words, it's the same question. What is his intent? What does he want to say to us? We might not understand all the imagery that he's using, but what is he trying to say to us? And, and so a, a word that means taking a word or phrase from another culture and translating into our equivalent is, is a word called hermeneutics. I don't know if you are familiar with the word hermeneutics. That's taking something out of its other context and bringing it into our context and understanding it rightly. Because if we don't, we'll misinterpret this older text, right? So this requires work and effort. And people can't, well, when people can't or do not do that work, they, they, we have to ditch our 21st century kind of pre-beliefs about what we think the text says and, and then actually come to the text asking, what does it actually say? Um, here's, I'll give you an example of a, a, a Christian, <laughs> Christian professor. Here's what he says about this text that we're reading this morning. Um, this particular Christ, Christian, again, air quotes, professor says, the brutality of the king in the parable of the king's son's wedding presents a serious challenge to the nonviolent interpretive strategies. And, I mean, it's hard to even take this seriously. Uh, this has to be Harvard or Yale. Um, and the key to the problem is whether or not one makes the allegorical reading that sees this tyrant king as God. The vast majority of interpreters, mysteriously to me, seem resigned to such a reading and try to make the best of it. I refuse to make such a capitulation for a king whose behavior resembles someone like Saddam Hussein or any other number of brutal dictators who we could name, including Herod and Caesar of Jesus' time. So here's a very learned professor in a very high position in a university who's coming at this text with his own presuppositions. So the person, the scholar that made the statement wasn't really interested in historical realities, historical norms, or historical culture, or even really understanding what the text is trying to say. His or her presuppositions took over and the text stopped being about God and his holiness and instead it became about oppression. But not all presuppositions are bad. For example, if you approach the Bible with the belief, the presupposition that God, it's God's breathed out word, that's a good presupposition. If you're coming to it believing that it's man's best thoughts about God, it's going to lead you astray. 
So we have to approach every text carefully and ask the Spirit to make us aware when we're bringing wrong presuppositions to the Scriptures. That's very important for us, okay? Because a text without its context is a pretext for a proof text. Did you get that? A text, you read a, you read a paragraph or a sentence in the Bible, without its context, what came before it and what came after it, if you, if you just read that, then it's going to be a pretext for you to proof text and make it say whatever you wanted to say. But if you have the context and you understand it, you're going to get it, you're probably going to get it right. You might need to dial it in a little bit, but you could, you could generally be right with the, the text of Scripture. So given that, remember, Jesus is in Jerusalem, right? And all this is happening during what we call the Passion Week leading up to his crucifixion. Remember the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The palm branches, the, though taken as symbols of peace, were minted on the coinage of Israel. It would have been like, uh, a lot like waving the stars and stripes as the king came into the city. Um, Jesus fulfills prophecy by arriving in Jerusalem on the exact day promised in prophecy and in precisely the way that the prophets described in advance. And the fact that the people missed Jesus' real intent and purposes is precisely the reason that he laments and weeps bitterly over Jerusalem. They come upon that barren fig tree. You remember that? The symbol of national Israel, and the fig tree is cursed because it didn't have fruit. Later, Jesus will prophesy about the end times by employing that very symbol to illustrate Israel's key role in being fulfilled in the future. In the future, not, not immediately. And, there, and there, Jesus employs several parables here. We, we talked about this last week. Um, all of this is in response to the religious leadership challenging Jesus' authority, which is ironic when you consider who Jesus is, <laughs> right? And so the parable of the two sons, we talked about that last week. One said that he would go and work. One said that he wouldn't. And then they both did the opposite thing. And, and which, uh, so the, what we talked about, let's see, where did I get my notes? I just lost my notes. <laughs> parable of the two sons, which son was pleasing and honoring to the father? right? The Jews, especially the religious leaders, were supposed to be taking God to those around them, but they weren't. We talked about the parable of the vineyard owner, his tenants. The Jews kept dishonoring the servants that he sent to them, and then they killed the owner's son, which is prophetic of, of what's about to happen to Jesus. And then, then the question, well, what do you think the owner should do to those wicked tenants? And then we come to Matthew 22 in the parable of the wedding feast. Now remember, why parables? Why? We have to remember that the context is one of judicial hardening. God is hardening the hearts of a people who have not responded favorably to his initiative, to his love, to his calling. Um, now, not all the parables in the Bible are equally hidden or equally confusing. Some of them are relatively clear and explicit, and those are the ones that immediately drew the ire and frustration of the religious leaders who understood some of the implications. But the Apostle Paul would put it this way later when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Paul said, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom from God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. 
None of the rulers of this age have understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So let's unpack this parable in this text. This is the wedding feast parable. And let me just give you the identities of the players here, right off the bat. The king in the parable is God the Father, okay? The kingdom people, that's national Israel. That's the Jews. The servants in this parable are the prophets, and I would also add the future apostles who would take the message. And then everyone else, all who were invited is everyone else and all the whole world, the inclusion of the Gentiles even, who are non-Jews, right? So there's this inclusion at the end, which you'll see. Um, verses one through five, we, we, we read this, we just read the parable. So if you go back to verses one through five, here's what you're gonna see. You're gonna see the king's first choice. He makes choice number one, and his choice is to elect from among his covenant people messengers that he sends. Those are, again, the prophets and the apostles. Here's what Acts, Acts chapter 10 says in verse 36 on. This is Peter who is speaking here. He says, as for the word that was sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to those who've been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Amen. Amen. Listen to what John says in John 15 Verse 16, this is Jesus speaking, John writing, you did not choose me, but I chose you, his, his apostles. I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that that fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my father's name, he will give it to you, right? That's incredible. We know that God uses miraculous means to ensure that his message goes forth. I'll give you two examples. The Old Testament's chock full of them. Let me give you two. Jonah, Paul, Jonah, reluctant prophet, did not want to go to Nineveh, did not want to go to the pagan fish lovers. It's funny because they were landlocked, but they, they worshiped Dagon, the fish gods. I don't know what that's about, but um, sudden storm, big fish, swallowed vomited up on the beach. You better just go with what God said the first time, right? Paul, who was Saul, blinded by the light, knocked off his high horse, literally. <laughs> Here's Acts 9, just a quick little excerpt. Uh, verse 3, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. 
What was he going to Damascus for? He was going to persecute Christians. Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, falling to the ground, hearing a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. That would freak you out. You're blind suddenly, you fall off your horse and the, the voice of the, the person that the people you're going to persecute worship, the, that person is speaking to you, that, that would freak you out. So p- please hear what I'm about to say. This does not prove that God has decided beforehand. This whole thing about election, it does not have anything to do with God deciding beforehand who will and won't believe the message of the gospel. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It simply means, election simply means that he appoints his messengers and that his will goes forth and accomplishes everything for which it is sent. You get to make a choice when you encounter the gospel, whether you're going to believe it or not. And until the moment that you stop breathing air and step into eternity, you still have that, you still have that opportunity. This is not, election is not unto salvation. It's, it's election unto service. That's what we see here. So that, that brings us to king's choice number two, to send invitations to his people, the Jews, right? In this parable, he sends the invitations out to his people, the Jewish nation. The provision was made for their perishing souls, and it's the same gospel that we believe. It's the invitation to reconciliation with God. And in this parable, it's represented by a royal feast made by a king with typical Eastern lavishness, on the occasion of the marriage of his son. Our merciful God has not only provided food, but a royal feast for the perishing souls of his rebellious creatures. (laughs) And the guests who are first invited are the Jews. Unfortunately, many of them rejected the invitation of Jesus and continue to do so. Their rejection of that invitation has resulted in much trouble for them that could have been avoided. But they chose life here and now And stuff, God calls that mammon, over submission and obedience to the king. And if we're not careful, we can do the same. They lost sight that this was an invitation to a celebration, not a conscription. They weren't being conscripted. They were asked to come and and enjoy. And also there's this business of profit and worldly endeavors which hinder many coming to the Savior. It's true that both Uh, Farmers and merchants must be diligent, but whatever we have of this world in our hands, we must take good care of as stewards and and, and hold it in our hands loosely. Don't let it get in your heart. Whatever God gives you to steward, don't, don't, don't let it sit here. Keep it right here in your hands. Don't let it get in your heart. It comes between us and Christ. And the next point is so important. It's hard to believe. Although rejected, God continued to woo his people. Even, even after they rejected him, wholesale. He warned them. He disciplined them. Still, they refused to repent. And even then, God would not give up on them. This is the heart of our father. That's incredible. The king's servants are mistreated in the parable, and then they're killed. It's just like the, the, the parables we read last week. The servants that he sent, they end up getting killed, and then they kill his son. But the Israelites tortured and killed these messengers. And so the king renders judgment on Israel nationally. And here's his verdict. He says, my people are not worthy. They're not worthy. Take take some time this week. Go home today and read Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And you will see Paul say the same thing. 
This is so unfortunate that the Jewish people whom I love so dearly have, have been blinded, judicially hardened and blinded to the fact that they have rejected their Messiah. So hard. Israel has stumbled nationally, stumbled badly, but not beyond recovery, God says. They will be grafted back in after being made jealous by the inclusion of the Gentiles. That's the church. That's us. We get to make them jealous so they come back to God. Here's verses 8 and 9 here of the parable. Uh, this is King's choice number three, to send invites to the Gentiles now, to the whole world. And here's where the Great Commission comes in. Matthew 28, 19 to 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all of them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here's the part everybody leaves out. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even until the ending of the age. See, this, this commission that I've just read to you is an open invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's, ex it's exactly the same thing. Listen to John 3, 12 to 17. Jesus said, I've told you earthly things and you don't believe. How can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one can ascend into heaven except he who is descended from heaven, the son of man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so liked the world, kind of, Oh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This means we should not limit our evangelistic efforts to certain sets of individuals. We need to take it to everyone we can. I've heard of churches that pass bylaws that prohibit people from having tattoos to participate in their services. Seriously? Not us. You come here tatted up. It's fine. When we launched this church in 2017, our worship pastor was the most tatted up guy I'd ever met. It's not a salvific issue. Some churches pass dress codes and tell people to leave if they don't measure up. It seems to me that some churches spend a lot of time making rules to keep people out instead of doing exactly what Jesus said about inviting everyone to the wedding feast. If you're here today and, and you need to submit to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let me assure you, he doesn't care about what you're wearing. He doesn't care about how much money you make or what you've done in the past. He wants you to come just as you are, humble before him, and to begin a personal relationship with him and through faith in him alone. And now if after I've vehemently trashed church dress codes. Here's Jesus with a dress code. Uh, verses 11 to 14. Only To only allow guests with proper wedding attire. <laughs> That's the dress code. The wedding garments would have typically been provided for the guests, especially in the case of the rich or nobility who could afford to do so. But the, only those who are properly dressed in the right wedding garments are able to attend the feast of the son's wedding. Let me give you some Old Testament references. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. 
You're going to get kicked out if you've got polluted garments. He says, we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So you can't get in with polluted garments. You've got to be white and clean. Zechariah 3, 3 through 5. Now Joshua was standing before that angel clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Okay, now we're starting to see what this is really about. It's not about clothes. It's not about cloth. It's about purity. It's about righteousness. He said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. You know that we're the bride of Christ, right? Dudes, I'm the bride of Christ. We are. Revelation 19, 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You don't have to go buy some clothes after church. You just need to submit yourself to Jesus. That's the righteousness. And here's how we are become clothed and righteous in Christ. Paul says this so clearly, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it was not because of your cleverness, not because of your effort. Not, it's not your doing. It's not a result of works so that nobody can boast. You can't get to God's presence and say, yeah, I did it, bro. I'm here. Look at me. Nobody. Nobody. For we are his workmanship. I love that word. That word workmanship is the Greek word poema, and it actually means a masterpiece, like a da Vinci painting or a da Vinci sculpture or a, 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 the Mona Lisa or some... some famous work of art that we would just go, wow. So, so here's God saying, we are his poema. We are his workmanship. This incredibly crafted, one-of-a-kind person created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not to get into heaven, but because we're already citizens of heaven when we put our faith in him, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in those good works. He wants us to walk in those. And only Christ can clothe us with righteousness. Self-righteousness is, de is a delusion. It's a delusion. <clears throat> we can't make ourselves righteous. Nor can any law or any rule of man put us right with God. The only thing that can accomplish that is the imputed righteousness of Christ. And the, in, in, in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Those, those are able to cleanse us and open up access for us into heaven. No man or woman wears the wedding garment by nature, nor can anyone somehow make for themselves wedding garments for the feast out of human effort. It is only by grace through faith that we are saved. That's it. That's it. So what do we do with this? Well, the moral of Christ's parable was this. Many are called, 
but few are chosen or few are elect. In other words, many are unconditionally invited by unconditionally elected servants from an unconditionally elected nation. See, God didn't put any conditions on them in order to use them. He just did. He just did. The nation of Israel was not chosen because it was more moral or more deserving. That would have been unconditional. The servants from that nation were not selected because they were more uh, wise. The invitations were not sent to people because they were more deserving. The, The invitation, the word of God, the gospel in particular, was brought to the world through this Jewish nation, through individually selected servants of that nation. And this is what Christ is referencing when he says many are called. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with the people that he uses. Okay? Clearly, this is in reference to those conditionally permitted entrance into the banquet based on their being properly clothed in the right wedding garments. You see, the king elects to permit those rightly clothed to come in and the rest are cast out. Likewise, God will only permit those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ to enter into heaven. The few who are elect or elected were clearly conditionally chosen based on their garments, the righteousness of Christ. They chose to put on the garments and therefore he chose to let them in. We are elect insofar as we're connected with Christ. We're clothed in his righteousness. He provided the wedding garments. We couldn't have made our own. We couldn't do that. Jesus is clearly giving us a parable that explains how God's elective purposes have come to pass. He chose a people, Israel, to be the nation through which he gave the law and the prophets and the word of God. And, 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 and we're, we need to be grateful for that, right? That was given to the whole world. He gave that to everybody. And this choice was not based on the impressive size or morality of that nation or the individuals in it. Scripture tells us God didn't choose the nation of Israel because it was more impressive. Go read Deuteronomy 7. He says the exact opposite. So I chose you because you're weak and nothing and I'm making much of me, not much of you. Nor did he choose the individuals for that nation to carry his invitation because they were more moral. Read Romans 9, 10 and 11. Read Acts 22. Likewise, neither is the choice to send the message first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles appear to be based on the morality of those who are invited. He clearly states the servants went out in the streets and gathered all the people they could, good and bad alike. One might describe those these choices as being unconditional. After all, God did not choose the nation based on its impressiveness or the individual servants he called to carry his invitations because of their super morality, nor does he send the invitations to the wedding feast specifically to people who are more moral or upright. That choice is clearly conditional. But the choice of those who are allowed into the banquet is conditional upon the individual showing up in the right attire. You have to show up in the righteousness of Christ or you can't get in. The wedding garments clearly represent being clothed in the righteousness of Christ through faith. Therefore, the few who are chosen represent those who responded freely to the invitation sent by the king through his unconditionally chosen servants from his unconditionally chosen nation. And the confusion comes when we convolute these distinct choices that the king makes. So I'm hoping that this is clearing it up for you. 
I, I hope, I'm thoroughly convinced that as long as the church does not understand that God's divine elective purposes have to do with unconditionally choosing the nation of Israel and certain servants from that nation, then we will continue to be confused by this biblical doctrine, like so many of our brothers and sisters are in the church today. God's choice to save whosoever willingly, whosoever willingly responds to the invitation in faith is the hallmark of the well-meant gospel offer. So let me just, let me just say this. I'm going off script. If you believe that God has already pre-selected those who are going to be saved and pre-selected those who are going to be damned, you cannot, you cannot reasonably or sincerely preach the gospel to a crowd of people, of five or six or more people. Because when you do, if you believe God has already picked who is damned and who is saved, and, and, he's, and, and then people don't have anything about, any choice in that matter at all, because God's already decided, you will be preaching to people who are damned to hell and telling them that they can respond to the gospel, and you'll be misrepresenting God. So don't do that. Don't buy into that. Don't buy into that. God's choice to save whoever willingly responds to the invitation is, in faith is the hallmark of the well-meant gospel offer. We have to get our theology right, folks, especially our soteriology, the, the, the theology of salvation. See, now you, you have to respond to this. And I think probably most of you have already gotten your invitation and, and your RSVP'd to go. But just in case you're not, you need to take care of that today. The Father is inviting you now, right now, even if you've never received that invitation before. You can receive it and embrace it, but don't make excuses whatever you do because nothing in this life is more important than accepting and responding to God's invitation. You may think your job is the most important thing in your life right now, but I assure you it is not. It's important, but it's not the most important thing in your life. Your family is super important, but they are not the most important thing in your life. Jesus Christ is the most important thing in all of existence. Now, if you've never received an invitation to the party, you're receiving it right now today. And, it, and, and you get to RSVP, and you can do that right now. You're going to need some new fancy duds to wear to the wedding. Luckily, Jesus has a robe just for you. It's all white, and it's ready to go. And if you've already RSVP'd and you're wearing the right clothes, catch this. You've been assigned double duty because now you're a messenger too. Who are you going to invite to the party? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your provision for us. We look at this and it's so overwhelming what you've done for us. We have sinned against you. We have all at some point in our lives rebelled against you or your proxies, our parents, our teachers, or whoever. We have been sinful and disobedient and yet you have offered us an invitation to this wedding feast. Lord, we receive it gr gratefully, humbly, and we ask that you would give us the unction and the, and the, uh, the boldness to take that invitation to others around us not to sit on it, not to hide it under a bushel, but to take it to those who have not RSVP'd, have not received the invitation yet. We ask you you would do this, Lord, through us and in us for your glory. In your name we pray, amen.